Alright folks, today I'm going to talk about the Tatar people. Alright, this is from Britannica. Tatar, also spelled Tartar, T-A-R-T-A-R. Any member of several Turkic-speaking peoples that collectively numbered more than 5 million in the late 20th century and lived mainly in western West Central Russia, Russia geez, man, along the central course of the Volga River and its tributary, the Kama, and thence east to the Ural Mountains. The Tatars are also settled in Kazakhstan and to a lesser extent in western Siberia. The name Tatar first appeared among nomadic tribes living in northeastern Mongolia and the area around Lake Baikal from the 5th century CE. Unlike the Mongols, these people spoke a Turkic language and they may have been related to the Kuman or Kipchak peoples. After various groups of these Turkic nomads became part of the armies of the Mongol conqueror Genghis Khan in the early 13th century, a fusion of Mongol and Turkic elements took place, and the Mongol invaders of Russia and Hungary became known to Europeans as Tatars or Tartars. This, uh, this word also makes me wonder if, like, Tata came from that Tata or Tata or even you know the Indian guy named Tata with the big ass company I don't know maybe maybe there's some connection alright after Genghis Khan's empire broke up the Tatars became especially identified with the western part of the Mongol domain which included most of European Russia and was called the Golden Horde. These Tatars were converted to Sunnite Islam in the 14th century. Owing to internal divisions and various foreign pressures, the Golden Horde disintegrated late in the 14th century into the independent Tatar Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan on the Volga River, Sibir in western Siberia, and Crimea. Russia conquered the first three of these Khanates in the 16th century, but the Crimean Khanate became a vassal state of the Ottoman Turks until it was annexed to Russia by Catherine the Great in 1783. In their Khanates, the Tatars developed a complex social organization and their nobility preserved its civil and military leadership into Russian times. Distinct classes of commoners were merchants and tillers of the soil. At the head of, at the head of government stood the Khan of the foremost Tatar state, the Kazan Khanate part of whose family joined the Russian nobility by direct agreement in the 16th century. This stratification within Tatar society continued 
until the Russian Revolution in 1917. During the 9th to 15th centuries, the Tatar economy became based on mixed farming and herding, which still continues. The Tatars also developed a tradition of craftsmanship in wood, ceramics, leather, cloth, and metal, and have long been well known as traders. During the 18th and 19th centuries, they earned a favored position within the expanding Russian Empire as commercial and pol political agents, teachers, and administrators of newly won Central Asian territories. More than 1.5 million Kazan Tatars still live in the Volga and Urals regions, and they constitute about half the population within the Republic of Tatarstan. They are now known as Volga Tatars and are the wealthiest and most industrially advanced of the Tatar groups. Almost a million more Tatars live in Kazakhstan. <sighs> Excuse me, and Central Asia, while the Siberian Tatars, numbering only about a hundred thousand, live scattered over western Siberia. The Crimean Tatars had their own history in the modern period. They formed the basis of the Crimean Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic, which was set up by the Soviet government in 1921. This republic was dissolved in 1945, however, after Soviet leader Joseph Stalin accused the approximately 200,000 Crimean Tatars of having collaborated with the Germans during World War II. As a result, the Crimean Tatars were deported en masse to Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan with their use of the Tatar language where their use of the Tatar language was forbidden. They regained their civil rights in 1956 under the destalinization program of Nikita Khrushchev, but they were not allowed to return to Crimea, which had been incorporated into the Ukrainian SSR in 1954. It was not until the early 1990s that many Crimean Tatars, taking advantage of the breakup of the Soviet central government's authority, began returning to settle in Crimea after nearly five decades of internal exile. In the early 21st century, they numbered about 250,000. Alright, now I read this thing on Tatarstan, Republic Russia. Alternate titles Tatar ASSR Tataria. Alright, Tatarstan, also called Tataria, Republic in the East Central part of European Russia. The Republic lies in the middle Volga River basin around the confluence of the Volga and Kama rivers. Kazan is the capital. The Volga flows north south across the western end of the Republic while the Kama, the Volga's, the Volga's largest tributary, forms a roughly east-west axis through the greater part. 
the Vyatka and Belaya rivers are major tributaries of the Kama. Generally, the relief is that of a low rolling plain. The area west of the Volga rises to 771 feet, representing the extreme northern end of the Volga upland. In the east, the land rises to the Urals foreland. The climate is continental with long, severe winters and hot summers. Annual rainfall is about 17 to 20 inches with a summer maximum. Most of the republic lies in the forest steppe zone on degraded or podsolized chernozems, black earth. I kind of like how um, Britannica, like, okay, I guess this is this geography, but still, it's like it, it explains so much about the land and stuff. It's kind of interesting, okay. Most, okay, about one-sixth of the territory is forested. Along the rivers are broad floodplain meadows, although those on the Volga and Lower Kama have disappeared under the waters of the Niznek, the Niznekomsk Reservoir and the Samara Reservoir which flooded more than 1,100 square miles of the Republic. The Tatars, who today constitute approximately half of Tatarstan's population, are a Turkic people. Descendants of the Mongols of the Golden Horde, they established themselves in this area in the mid-13th century, largely replacing or absorbing the native Bulgar population. As the Golden Horde declined in power in the 15th century, it split into separate groups, of which the Kazan Khanate was the most northerly. The Khanate was long engaged with Muscovy in a struggle that was finally resolved in 1552 when Ivan IV the Terrible <laughs> besieged and captured Kazan. Russian colonization of the region began after the conquest of Kazan. The republic was formed in 1920. Tatarstan remained a republic within the Russian Federation after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, but separatist sentiments emerged soon afterward among its Tatar population. The the Republic's diversified economy centers on petroleum production, industry, and agriculture. The first oil well was drilled in 1943. God damn, the first oil well was... Okay, and subsequent development was rapid. Okay, Pipelines run east and west from the oil fields at Almatyvsk. Production of natural gas is, central, is centered in Niznaya... Maktama. Um, the chemical industry has developed chiefly at Kazan, Mendelevsk, and this. Okay, engineering works are concentrated. Okay, blah 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 blah. Okay. Now, I'm gonna go to Wikipedia because why not? The Tatars is an umbrella 
term for different Turkic ethnic groups bearing the name Tatar. Initially, the etonym Tatar possibly referred to the Tatar Confederation. Okay, um, let me see. Actually, I'm going to go back to um, Britannica, Tatar, and then Lake Baikal because this lake is, is a very interesting because I think there was a big ass volcano up here and they say that the Tatar people originated from this area around this lake Lake Baikal, Russian Ozero Baikal also spelled Ozero Bajkal lake located in the southern part of eastern Siberia within the Republic of Buryatia and Irkutsk Oblast, province of Russia. It is the oldest existing freshwater lake on Earth, 20 million to 25 million years old, as well as the deepest continental body of water, having a maximum depth of 5,315 feet or 1,620 meters. I think this is the biggest motherfucking volcano that was there that formed, you know, that whole big ass continent. That's just my theory, but we'll see. Um, its area is some 12,200 square miles with a length of 395 miles and an average width of 30 miles. Is also the world's largest freshwater lake by volume, containing about one fifth of the fresh water on Earth's Earth's surface. One fifth, man, fresh water. There's one percent of fresh water on this planet, and one fifth of that is in just this one fucking lake. Some five thousand five hundred cubic miles into Lake Baikal flow more than three hundred thirty rivers and streams. The largest of which include the Selenga Barguzin Upper Verknaya Angara Chikoy and Uda. Baikal lies in a deep structural hollow surrounded by mountains, some of which rise more than 6,600 feet above the lake's surface. The sedimentary strata on the floor of the lake may be as much as 20,000 feet thick. Breaks in Earth's crust produce hot mineral springs in the area. Yeah, there you go. There are occasional severe earthquakes. In 1862, a, qu a quake inundated about 77 square miles in the northern Selenga Delta, creating a new bay in Baikal known as Provol Bay. The lake hollow is not symmetrical, having steep slopes on the western shores and gentler slopes on the eastern. The meandering shoreline runs for some 1,300 miles with large indentations at the, okay, 
blah, 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 blah. Baikal's climate is much milder than that of the surrounding territory. Winter air temperatures average negative 6 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 21 degrees Celsius. And August temperatures average 52 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, that's not bad. 11 degrees Celsius. The lake surface freezes in January and thaws in May or June. The water temperature at the surface in August is between 50 to 54 and reaches 68 wow 68 in the offshore shallows okay waves can be as high as 15 feet wow this is a lake the water is very clear from the surface one can see to 130 feet dang its salinity is low and it contains few minerals Anyways, okay, where was I? And then I wanted to check out the Kuman or the Kipchak people. Okay, so the Kumans, spelled C-U-M-A-N. Kuman, Hungarian Kun, member of a nomadic Turkish people comprising the western branch of the Kipchak confederation until the Mongol invasion in 1237 forced them to seek asylum in Hungary. During the 12th century, the Cumans acted as auxiliary troops for the Russian princes and in that capacity clashed with Hungarian exped exped expeditionary forces. But by the beginning of the 13th century, they had become more aggressive and launched their own raids into southeastern Transylvania. Soon afterward, the Cuman prince Bark and 15,000 of his people were baptized. The first bishopric of Cumania was established in 1228, and King Bela IV of Hungary assumed the title King of Cumania. Okay, so these guys were already... In 1239, he granted asylum to the Cumans and their prince Kuthen, who had earlier tried un unsuccessfully to organize Russian resistance to the Mongols. Just before the Mongol invasion of Hungary in 1240-41, however, Kuthen, who was considered a dangerous alien, was murdered. Humans left Hungary but were resettled there by Bella in 1245. Bella's son, the future Stephen V, married a Cuman princess and under the rule of their son, Cuman influence in Hungarian affairs was great. Nevertheless, the Cumans did not become completely assimilated into Hungarian society for centuries. Alright, now let's check out the Kipchak people. The Kipchak, Russian Polovsky, no. Polovd C. Byzantine Cuman with a K or Cuman. So this is like the same. They're basically mixed in the same. A loosely organized Turkic tribal confederation that by the mid 11th century occupied a vast sprawling territory in the Eurasian steppe stretching from north of the Aral Sea westward to the region north of the Black Sea. Some tribes of the Kipchak Confederation probably originated 
near the Chinese borders and after having moved into western Siberia by the 9th, 9th century migrated further west into the Trans-Volga region now western Kazakhstan and then in the 11th century to the steppe area north of the Black Sea now in Ukraine and southwestern Russia the western grouping of this confederation was known as the Polovd, Polovd Sea or Cuman, or by other names, most of which have the meaning pale or sallow. I don't know what that means, sallow. S-A-L-L-O-W. The Kipchak were nomadic pastoralists and warriors who lived in yurts, movable tents. Yes. Uh, in the... Huh, that's interesting. So they were nomadic... And they also lived in tent in yurts. In the late 11th and early 12th centuries, they became involved in various conflicts with the Byzantines, Kievan Rus, the Hungarians, and the Pechenegs, allying themselves with one or the other side at different times. The Kipchak remained masters of the steppe north of the Black Sea until the Mongol invasions. During the first Mongol invasion of Kivan Rus, 1221-1223, the Kipchak sided at different times with the invaders and with the local Slavic princes. In 1237, the Mongols penetrated for the second time into Kipchak territory and killed Bakman, the Khan of the eastern Kipchak tribes. The Kipchak Confederation was destroyed and most of its lands and people were incorporated into the Golden Horde, the westernmost division of the Mongol Empire. The Cuman or Western Kipchak tribes fled to Hungary and some of their warriors became mercenaries for the Latin Crusaders and the Byzantines. The defeated Kipchaks also became a major source of slaves for parts of the Islamic world. Kipchak slaves called Mamluks huh, serving in the Ayyubid dynasty's armies came to play important roles in the history of Egypt and Syria where they formed the Mamluk state, the remnants of which survived until the 19th century. The Kipchak spoke a Turkic language whose most important surviving record is the Codex Cumanicus, a late 13th century dictionary of words in Kipchak, Latin, and Persian. That sounds like an interesting book. Okay, The presence in Egypt of Turkic-speaking Mamluks also stimulated the compilation of Kipchak Arabic dictionaries and grammars that are important in the study of several old Turkic languages. This is interesting because, like, anytime I look up the Mongols, this all this shit seems to be connected with the Tatars and and um, Turkic and Ottoman. Okay, let me see. Turkic languages, group of closely related languages that form a family within the Altaic language group. Okay, the Turkic languages show 
close similarities to each other in phonology, morphology, and syntax, though Chuvash, Kalaj, and Saka differ considerably from the, from the rest. The earliest linguistic records are old Turkic inscriptions found near the Orhan River in Mongolia and the Yenisei River Valley in south-central Russia, which date from the 8th century CE. Turkic languages are distributed over a vast area in Eastern Europe and Central and North Asia, ranging with some interruptions from the Balkans to the Great Wall of China and from Central Iran, Persia to the Arctic Ocean. The core area between the 35th and 55th parallels includes a western section comprising Asia Minor, Northern Iran, and Transcaucasia, a central west Turkestan, Russian section to the east of the Caspian Sea, and an east Turkestan, Chinese section beyond the Tian Shan. Focus Tian Shan. Okay, this is great mountain system in cent of Central Asia. Chinese for celestial mountains. Okay, so Shan means it's interesting because Shan is is mountain in Chinese. San is mountain in Korean. Then you have Khan, which is you know a title of then you have all these countries with the last with that end with stan so this this sound of is very interesting shan khan stan um also the mongolian language if you look up the alphabets and compare it with the korean alphabets or even urdu or hindi it's i'm just saying it's interesting the northern area extends from western Russia to northern Siberia. States in which Turkic languages are spoken include Turkey, Russia, Azerbaijan, northern Cyprus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, China, Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, Bulgaria, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Greece, Romania, Lithuania, and because of recent industrial migration, several western European countries. With all the also with the Stan name, I mean even India is called Hindustan. So I don't know what the link is here, but I definitely think there's something with Khan, Stan, Shan, San. It's something. All right. Um, let's see. I'm gonna look up. Ottoman Empire, okay, date, 1300s to 1922, basically, First World War was to overthrow these fuckers, I think, right, if I'm not mistaken, alright, uh, Ottoman Empire, alright, Ottoman Empire, historical empire, Eurasia and Africa, Empire created by Turkish tribes in Anatolia, Asia Minor, that grew to be one of the most powerful states in the world during the 15th and 16th centuries. 
the Ottoman the Ottoman period spanned more than 600 years and came to an end only in 1922 when it was replaced by the Turkish Republic and various successor states in southeastern Europe and the Middle East. At its height, the empire encompassed most of southeastern Europe to the gates of Vienna, including present-day Hungary, the Balkan region, Greece, and parts of Ukraine. Portions of the Middle East now occupied by Iraq, Syria, Israel, and Egypt, North Africa as far west as Algeria, and large parts of the Arabian Peninsula. The term Ottoman is a dynastic appellation derived from Osman I, Arabic Uthman, the nomadic Turkmen chief who founded both the dynasty and the empire about 1300. Osman I, okay. The Ottoman state to 1481, the age of expansion. The first period of Ottoman history was characterized by almost continuous territorial expansion, during which Ottoman dominion spread out from a small northwestern Anatolian principality to cover most of southeastern Europe and Anatolia. The political, economic, and social institutions of the classical Islamic empires were amalgamated with those inherited from Byzantium, Byzantium and the great Turkish empires of Central Asia and were re-established in new forms that were to characterize the area into modern times. Origins and Expansion of the Ottoman State 1300-1402 In their initial stages of expansion, the Ottomans were leaders of the Turkish warriors for the faith of Islam, known by the honorific title Ghazi, Arabic raider, who fought against the shrinking Christian Byzantine state. The ancestors of Osman I, the founder of the dynasty, were members of the Kayi tribe who had entered Anatolia along with a mass of Turkmen Oghuz nomads. Oghuz. Those nomads migrating from Central Asia established themselves as the Seljuk dynasty in Iran and Mesopotamia in the mid-11th century, overwhelmed Byzanti Byzantium after overwhelmed Byzantium after the Battle of Manzikert. 1071, and occupied eastern and central Anatolia during the 12th century. The Ghazis fought against the Byzantines and then the Mongols, who invaded Anatolia following the establishment of the Ilkhanid Il Empire in Iran and Mesopotamia in the last half of the 13th century, with the disintegration of Seljuk power and its replacement by Mongol suzerainty enforced by direct military occupation of much of eastern Anatolia, independent Turkmen principalities, one of which was led by Osman, emerged in the remainder of Anatolia. Hmm. All right.
was just a bunch of uh, rulers for a while. And let me see. Peak of Ottoman power. Uh, sure. During the century that followed the reign of Mehmed the Second, the Ottoman Empire achieved the peak of its power and wealth. New conquests extended its domain in well into Central Europe and throughout the Arab portion of the old Islamic Caliphate and a new amalgam of political, religious, social, and economic organizations and traditions was institutionalized and developed into a living, working whole. Hmm, let me see. Man, there's a lot of... Okay, so... Let's jump to... Jumping way ahead to Pan-Islamism. Alright, the Hejaz Railway constituted one element in Abdul Hamid's Pan-Islamic policies. This is what now. I'm just gonna jump to World War One. The Ottoman entry into World War I resulted from an overly hasty calculation of likely advantage. German influence was strong but not decisive. Germany's trade with the Ottomans still lagged behind that of Britain, France, and Austria and its investments, which included the Baghdad Railway between Istanbul and the Persian Gulf, were smaller than those of France. A mission to Turkey led by the German military officer Otto Lyman von Sanders in 1913 was only one of a series of German military missions and Lyman's authority, authority to control the Ottoman army was much more limited than contemporaries supposed. Except for the interest of Russia in Istanbul and the straits between the Black and Mediterranean Seas, no European power had genuinely vital interests in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans might have remained neutral as a majority of the cabinet wished, at least until the situation became clearer. But the opportunism of the Minister of War Enver Pasa Early German victories, friction with the Triple Entente, France, Russia, and Great Britain, arising out of the shelter given by the Ottomans to German warships, and long-standing hostility to Russia combined to produce an Ottoman bombardment of the Russian Black Sea ports, October 29, 1914, and a declaration of war by the Entente and taunt, I don't know, how, against the Ottoman Empire. 
the Ottomans made a substantial contribution to the Central Powers' war effort. Their forces fought in eastern Asia Minor, Anatolia, Azerbaijan, Mesopotamia, Syria, and Palestine, and the Dardanelles, as well as on European fronts, and they held down large numbers of Entente troops. In September 1918, they dominated Transcaucasia. What is this place? I never even heard of this place before. Transcaucasia? Let me see what this is. Russians, Russian Zakavkazie. Small but densely populated region to the south of the Caucasus Mountains. It includes three independent states, Georgia and the Northwest. Okay. Alright, uh, going back to this. During the war, the young Turks also took the opportunity to attack certain internal problems. Hmm. The capitulations were abolished uni unilaterally September 1914. Unilaterally. The autonomous status of Lebanon was ended. A number of Arab nationalists were executed in Damascus, August 1915 and May 1916. And the Armenian community in Eastern Asia Minor and Cilicia was massacred or deported to eliminate any domestic support for the pro-Christian Tsarist enemy on the Eastern Front. Between 600,000 and 1.5 million Armenians were killed. These events are now widely described as a genocide of the Armenian people. After 1916, all right, this part right here is about Armenia. It's interesting that uh, if you look up the history of the Catholic Church, the first country in Europe to become Catholic was Armenia. Anyways, after 1916, army desertions took place on a massive scale and e economic pressures became ac acute. The surrender of Bulgaria, September 28, 1918, which severed direct links with Germany was the final blow. The, the CUP cabinet resigned on October 7th and a new government was formed under Ahmed Izzet, Iz, Izzet Pasa on October 9th. On October 30, 30th, the Ottomans signed the Armistice of Mudros. So basically, it was... It was it was uh i look at if you look at um if you just look at these countries as as living organisms just like in a just like in you know video game like uh the civilization video games or age of empires or whatever just if you just look at these countries as just living organisms Okay, and as they grow, they need more resources and more space. So it's just like literally 
these great leaders or conquerors were literally f warrior kings who went out and expanded like as much as they could and then their nation was good for however long <laughs> and that was history oh this was a good ruler because his lineage kept this you know civilization going for you know 500 years 600 years it's it's like it's like blowing a bubble gum how big can you go before popping it is <laughs> this expansion is just buying you time and guess who guess who um guess who the the main beneficia beneficiaries are they're usually right in the middle of the organism the brains and everything the most important things are right in the center and it's usually just you know a few families that basically now guarantee their children's future up to like however many generations basically basically that's what it is civilizations empires they expand like a motherfucker so you know they're buying resources space and time until you know that family or whatever just dies from the inside and this type of um, this type of let's say um, nation running operating system has been going on for a while alright <laughs> let me see Anatolia Turkish Anadolu, also called Asia Minor. So Anatolia is Asia Minor. Okay. The peninsula of land that today constitutes the Asian portion of Turkey. I see. Because of its location at the point where the continents of Asia and Europe meet, Anatolia was, from the beginnings of civilization, a crossroads for numerous peoples migrating or conquering from either continent. This article discusses the history and cultures of ancient Anatolia beginning in prehistoric times and including the Hittite Empire, the Achaemenian and Hellenistic periods, and Roman, Byzantine, and Seljuk rule for later periods. Okay. Alright, I'll read this a little more. Prehistoric cultures of Anatolia. Anatolia may be defined in geographic terms as the area bounded to the north by the Black Sea, to the east and south by the southeastern Taurus Mountains, hmm, Taurus Mountains, and the Mediterranean Sea, and to the west by the Aegean Sea and Sea of Marmara. Culturally, the area also includes the islands of the eastern Aegean Sea. In most prehistoric periods, the, the regions to the south and west of Anatolia were under the influence of, respectively, Syria and the Balkans. 
This is another place I want to look up. Balkans. Much visible evidence of the earliest cultures of Anatolia may have been lost owing to the large rise in sea levels that followed the end of the Ice Age and to deposition of deep alluvium in many coastal and inland valleys. Alright, so, so, so from everything I've been looking at, this this image has been forming in my head which is basically earth used to be cold as fuck it was all frozen and for some reason um with the help of volcanoes it started to warm up again and the sun so, I think it was when the melting of all that ice with the help of volcanoes and the sun produced a um, livable atmosphere, environment, let's say, for shit to happen. So... I think there used to be way less water back in the day and it used to be more frozen ice and hence just the deeper we dig the more shit we find because yeah the the sea level was much lower back in the day because it was all mostly frozen ice okay um Nevertheless, there are widespread. They never, nevertheless, there are widespread, though little studied, signs of human occupation in cave sites, from at least the Upper Paleolithic period and earlier, Lower Paleolithic remains, are evident in Yarimburgaz Cave near Istanbul. Rock engravings of animals on the walls of caves near Antalya on the Mediterranean coast suggest a relationship with the Upper Paleolithic art of Western Europe. Associated with these are rock shelters, the stratified occupational debris of which has the potential finally to clarify the transitional phases between cave-dwelling society and the Neolithic economy of the first agricultural agricultural communities hmm. this is actually pretty interesting because just like kind of shows you the history of you know how all this came about in that area at least all right let's check out the Balkans Balkans, also called Balkan Peninsula, easternmost of Europe's three great southern peninsulas. There is not universal agreement on the region's components. The Balkans are usually characterized as comprising Albania, Bosnia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, Bulgaria, Croatia, 
that's another interesting thing the IA after all these names Kosovo, Montenegro uh, North Macedonia, Romania, Serbia, and Slovenia was all or part of each of these those countries located within the peninsula. Portions of Greece and Turkey are also located within the geographic region generally defined as the Balkan Peninsula, and many descriptions of the Balkans include those countries too. Um, hmm. Generally, the Balkans are bordered on the northwest by Italy, on the north by Hungary, on the north and northeast by Moldova and Ukraine, and on the south by Greece and Turkey or the Aegean Sea. The Balkans are washed by the Adriatic Sea in the west, the Ionian Sea in the southwest, and the Black Sea in the east. In the north, clear geographic delimitation, delimitation of the Balkans becomes difficult because the Pannonian Basin of the Great Alfold extends from Central Europe into parts of Croatia, Serbia, Serbia and Romania. History is so interesting, man. If if there was one thing I could do is just go back and just watch history, how everything unfolded, man. That would be something I would actually like to do if possible. Um Alright, let me see. Well, I don't know where the story is going to go from here, but I think we're all kind of waking up from a long ass hangover or dream and we're starting to put the pieces back together again and we're starting to realize um something doesn't look right alright I'll go back to The Turkic languages, the liter okay, the yeah, Turkic languages. based on Semitic patterns. Besides the Brahmi and Manichaean scripts, the Uyghur 
used a script of their own developed from the Sogdian cursive script. It was used among Central Asian Turks long after the victory of Islam in such places as the Golden Horde Khanate and Timurid courts. The Syriac Estrangelo script was used by Turkic-speaking Nestorians. Alright, now, the thing about Nestorians, check this out. Nestorianism is a Christian sect that originated in Asia Minor and Syria, stressing the independence of the divine and human natures of Christ and, in effect, suggesting that they are two persons loosely united. The, the schismatic sect formed following the condemnation of Nestorius and his teachings by the ecumenical councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon. Originally, Nestorianism envisaged the divine word as having associated with itself at the incarnation a complete independently existing man. From the orthodox, from the orthodox point of view, Nestorianism therefore denied the reality of the incarnation and represented Christ as a God-inspired man rather than as God-made man. I agree. This, I, this is the view I also take for Jesus. I thought Jesus, I think Jesus was probably a prophet, a shaman, and just his character was uh, written up by an amalgamation of ideals and the spirit of god descended on him it wasn't that he was the literal son of god okay son of god also is a title for shaman or priest or prophet since the fifth century all the principal branches of the christian church have united in condemning the storianism and have affirmed that christ is a single person at once holy human and holy divine yeah, because then you can make more money. <laughs> Christianity in Persia faced intermittent persecution until the Persian church in 424 formally proclaimed its full independence of Christian churches elsewhere, thereby freeing itself, freeing itself of suspicions about foreign links. Under the influence of Barsumas, the metropolitan of Nisibis, the Persian Church acknowledged Theodore of Mopsuestia, the chief Nestorian theological authority, as guardian of right faith in February 486. This position was reaffirmed under the Patriarch Babai, and since that time the Church has been Nestorian. Nestorius had been anathemized anathematized at the Second Council of Ephesus in 431 for denouncing the use of the title Theotokos, God-bearer, for Mary, insisting that this compromised the reality of Christ, Christ's human nature. When supporters of Nestorius gathered at the Theological School of Edessa, 
It was closed by imperial order in 489, and a vigorous Nestorian remnant migrated to Persia. The Persian church's intellectual center then became the new school in Nisibis, which carried on the venerable traditions of Edessa. By the end of the 5th century, there were seven metropolitan provinces in Persia and several by Shoprics in Arabia and India. The church survived a period of schism and persecution through the leadership of the patriarch Mar Abbah I, a convert from Zoroastrianism, and also through the renewal of monasticism by Abraham of Kashkar, the founder of the monastery on Mount Izala near Nisibis. After the Arab conquest of Persia, the Caliphate recognized the Church of the East as a millet or separate religious community and granted it legal protection. Nestorian scholars played a prominent role in the formation of Arab culture, hmm. and patriarchs occasionally gained influence with rulers. For more than three centuries, the church prospered under the, under the caliphate, but it became worldly and lost leadership in the cultural sphere. By the end of the 10th century, there were 15 metropolitan provinces in the caliphate and five abroad, including India and China. The historians also spread to Egypt, where monophysite Christianity acknowledged only one nature in Christ. In China, a Nestorian community flourished from the 7th to the 10th century. In Central Asia, certain Tatar tribes were almost entirely converted Christian, expansion reaching almost to Lake Baikal in eastern Siberia. Western travelers to the Mongol realm found Nestorian Christians well established there. Western travelers to the Mongol realm found Nestorian Christians well established there, even at the court of the great Khan, though they commented on the ignorance and superstition of the clergy. It's interesting that even the great Khan was when, during the 14th century, the Church of the East was virtually exterminated by the raids of the Turkic leader Timur, Nestorian communities lingered on in... Wait, what? When, during the 14th century, the Church of the East... So that was the Church of the East, basically. Was virtually exterminated by the raids of the Turkic leader Timur, Nestorian communities lingered on in a few towns in Iraq, but were concentrated mainly in Kurdistan, between the Tigris River and lakes Van and Ermia, partly in Turkey and partly in Iran. So I wonder if the current... Um, Christians in China are basically the... Nestorian Christians are hmm, interesting. Uh, in 1551, a number of Nestorians reunited with Rome and were called Chaldeans. 
Let's see. The original Nestorians having been termed Assyrians. Huh. The Nestorian church in India, part of the group known as the Christians of St. Thomas, allied itself with Rome and then split, half of its membership transferring allegiance to the Syrian Jacobite, the Monophysite Patriarch of Antioch. In 1898, in Ermia, Iran, <clears throat> a group of Nestorians headed by a bishop were received in the communion of the Russian Orthodox Church. The modern Nestorian Church is not Nestorian in the strict sense, though it venerates Nestorius and refuses to accept the title Theotokos for the Blessed Virgin. Contemporary Nestorians are presented by the Church of the East or Persian Church, usually referred to in the West as the Assyrian or Nestorian Church. Most of its members live in Iraq, Syria, and Iran. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Iraq, Syria, and Iran. <laughs> interesting. I'm gonna end it at that. Our history is is uh, very interesting. It's a mix of a lot of things in lots of different places. And guess what? Just today, this morning, I think, um, Japan's one of Japan's super volcanoes, Mount Aso. A-S-A-S-O Aso, I guess that's how you say it Aso, Aso Erupted And Along with La Palma Along with uh, Kilauea in Hawaii Yeah These volcanoes Are gonna be popping off One by one So It's gonna be an interesting Future for all of us. Peace.